chapter 9. We are going to be going over the seventh plague here. We're going to finish up with chapter 9, Lord willing. We have already seen God send six plagues upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And now we're coming up to the seventh plague that's going to be handed down upon Pharaoh and Egypt. And so we read in verse 13, starting there in chapter 9, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. So instructions are given to Moses to go before Pharaoh, stand before him, speak to him early in the morning, and there's something specific you need to say. Thus says Yahweh, God of the Hebrews. He's again reminding him who he is. Because remember, Pharaoh, back in chapter 5, he said, Who is Yahweh? Who is Yahweh that I should obey his voice? And he uses that name, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Well, the Lord is going to show Pharaoh that he is the God of the Hebrews. And he's greater than all of his false gods that he worships. And so he says to him, Let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh should listen. God has already sent down six plagues upon Pharaoh and the people there. And he has not yet, not yet let his people go. We've already seen six of them. We've seen the Nile turned into blood. And this, of course, the Nile was the life source of Egypt. So this comes against their gods. Osiris, the god of the Nile. knew the god of life of the Nile. Happy, the god of the floods into the fields of Egypt. And Num, the god who is a guardian of the Nile. We see this infestation of frogs take place. That goes against their god, Haget, the frog goddess. Infestation of lice comes. That goes against their god, Geb, the god of the earth. And the infestation of flying and biting insects against the gods of, uh, of uh, Capri and Atum, the beetle gods, and the gods of creation and renewal of life. We've seen a pestilence come upon the livestock against their god Apis, the god of strength, fertility, and vigor. And then we saw the boils upon man and beast against the gods of, uh, of Amun as well as Sekhmet, the gods of healing. So we've already seen six plagues come upon Pharaoh and the people of Egypt. So after all this, he really should let God's people go. Yet we read in verse 14, For at this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart, and on your servants and on your people, that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There's none like God. He is the one and only. And so here God tells Pharaoh that this plague is going to show you and the people the proof, the evidence that there is one God only and there's no God like him. And we're going to come back to this. Verse 15. Now if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. God is saying, I, I could have taken you out at any time. Know that. And that's sobering. I think all of us should realize this. The Lord could take us out at any time, or if you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, he could take you home at any time. God knows the number of our days. 
And he could take us home at any time because he is God. And he is one that has created us. And so in verse 16, he says, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. The purpose of this plague is to show the power of God. Understand that all the, the plagues up until this time have kind of been ratcheted up a little bit. But no person has died in a plague yet. Okay? This time, we're going to find out with hail, people are going to die. And beasts of the field are going to die as well. And so again, he wants to be able to show his power. And the reason that God has allowed for Pharaoh to be here in the first place, to be king is because he knew that this Pharaoh particularly, all of them did, but this Pharaoh right now is claiming himself to be God. Remember, the Pharaohs believed that they were deity as well. They're claiming to be God. He's claiming to be God of Egypt, God of the earth. And if he is God of the earth, then the people, the Hebrew people, belong to who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. So you think you're powerful? You think that those people are yours? I'm here to tell you they're mine. You need to let my people go. But I've raised you up to think that the way that you're going to think, to be who you are. So guess what? There, 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 there's going to be a meeting here. And one's going to come out on top. And it's going to be God. There's a new sheriff in town. And he's making that very, very known to them. And so it's interesting that as... God brings down each and every one of these plagues. He's going to be declaring to all people that he is God. And think about it. We're still talking about these plagues today. All these amazing things God did today. Later on in Joshua 9.9, when Joshua was bringing Israel into the promised land some 40 years after they left Egypt, the Gibeonites come. They come to Joshua and told him that they know everything that God did in Egypt. In Joshua 9.9, so they said to him, From a very far country, your servants have come. Because of the name of the Lord, your God, for we have heard of his fame and all that he did in Egypt. The fame went out. Even after they crossed the Red Sea, now as they're going to the promised land, the word has gotten out of all that God did with them in Egypt. 500 years later, when Israel is about to go to war with the Philistines, the Philistines hear shouting in the camp. And in verse 6 of 1 Samuel 4, it says, Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood the ark of the Lord had come into camp. So the Philistines were afraid. For they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods, these gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. So God's reputation went before him. Now the Philistines have it a little mixed up. They say gods instead of the one true God. But they're going to come to know the one true God as they go to war and all of a sudden they capture the Ark of the Covenant and then God makes his presence known by plagues, right? On the Philistines. And so his reputation has gone before him. And God's reputation is still remembered to this day because of the plagues they brought down upon Egypt. And we ask ourselves, why ten plagues? Why not one? Why not four? 
Well, I would submit to you that the more plagues, the more likely things are going to be remembered of God. And so 10 plagues, and on top of that, opening up the Red Sea, God has made himself known and to be remembered for all time. And so in verse 17 of chapter 9 says, As yet you, speaking of Pharaoh, exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. See, Pharaoh, you think you are God. You think you are the God over the Hebrews, the children of Israel. This is why you will not let them go. So this is why God is going to have to bring about this seventh plague. And this one is hail, as described here in verse 18. In verse 18, it says, Behold, tomorrow, about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Now, Egypt is one of the oldest nations in the world, even today. But even at this time, even at this time, Egypt has been around for about 1,500 years. Most scholars believe that their dynasties began around 3,000 B.C., So they've been around for a long time. And if anyone should have seen all sorts of different weather that has come and gone over 1,500 years, it would have been Egypt. And yet God tells them through Moses and says, oh, oh, you've seen nothing yet. You might have heard from your, your forefathers and stuff like that about hail. You know, you might have heard that in the past. I would submit to you that none of them have ever seen hail before. Maybe they have had in their history, but it's probably small or whatever, and it was brief or whatever it might be. Oh, they're going to see hail like they've never had in their whole history. And this is going to be the worst hailstorm ever. And this is quite a big statement for how long they've been a nation. In verse 19, it says, Therefore, send now, gather your livestock and all that you have in the field. You should underline in the field. For the hail shall come down on every man, every animal, which is where? Found in the field, and is not brought home, and they shall die. So Pharaoh gives, or God gives Pharaoh a warning. Look, your servants don't have to die. Your beasts of the field don't have to die. Bring them in from the field, because this is where it's going to happen. The hail this huge storm is going to happen in the field. Think about that for a moment. We'll come back to that as well. And then in verse 20, it says, He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So here we're told that some of the Egyptians were beginning to get the message. They didn't need four more plagues. The six were good enough. And some of them began to fear the word of the Lord, which is the beginning of salvation. Believe in the word of the Lord and you will be saved. Some of the Egyptians did this and they were saved from this judgment. I want to make this really clear. A heart that is not set upon God's word is against the will of God. I'm going to say that again. A heart that is not set upon the word of God is actually against the will of God. If your life is not set on the word, then your life is set against his will because God's will is in his word. It's in his word. 
And to not submit yourself to the word of God is to set yourself against him and his, wor- and his will. This is why Pharaoh is having such a hard time. He doesn't want to submit to the word of God because submitting to the word of God now means you're submitting to the will of God and you're thus declaring there is someone greater than yourself. And isn't that the way it is today? I don't believe in God. I'm not going to listen to God. Why? Because you don't want to think that there's someone greater than yourself. But understand, if you don't submit yourself to the, to the word of God, then you're against the will of God in your life. And that's not going to go over well for you. It won't go over well. Verse 21. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be hail in the land of Egypt on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven. And the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. Now the Hebrew word for hail is barad. And it means hailstones. Okay, it means hailstones. The word fire is ash, And it means fire burning Flames. So there were hailstones big enough to kill people and the beasts of the field. And as we read this next verse, also big enough to break trees. Verse 25, and the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. The word herb in the Hebrew Asev means green plants or plants for food. The word tree is eights, and it means wood or timber. How big is that hailstone that when it hits a tree, it breaks it in half? Wow, those are big. Those probably would have hurt a lot. Now, I find it very fascinating. The Lord never ceases to amaze me that sometimes when I go over an area of God's word that something similar happens that week. And all the hail that we have had in this previous week to where they had to stop the concert at Red Rocks because of all the hail that began to fall. And if you've seen any of the videos, I was going to show one of the videos, but... You know, um, people are screaming, they're crying, they're saying things that I can't put up there, okay? And they came out of there with welts, 90 people were injured, 10 sent to the hospital. Thank you, Lord, that there were no fatalities. As big as golf balls. And they were pelting the people. And they're interviewing him, and and one guy says, I have lumps on my head, I have welts all over my body. One girl, uh, uh, one of the hailstones hit her hand, and it broke her finger. You know, and and, and you're going, wow, you know? And all the other hail that's been in other places and and, and things like that. And I come back from Hawaii, (laughs) you know, thinking about 
all that I'm about to teach this week. And, oh, that's right, the seventh plague, hail. And that's all we're having this whole week. And it's like, wow, Lord, you're, you're amazing. You're amazing. And I'm also thinking to myself, you know, next week is locust. You don't have to give me a visual on that. Don't have to do that. But this is how powerful the hail is. And understand, what kind of fire is coming down? Is it, is it lightning? Yeah, probably. But it could also be fire. Because it's burning and, and everything else. And so hailstones with fire, lightning, thunder. It was pretty, pretty tragic, to say the least. And notice how specific it says, in the field. Now, this is a very specific plague because there's no mention of any destruction of the dwelling places in Egypt. So bring the cattle in, bring your servants in, put them in the houses, put them in the stables, the barns, all the, all the livestock. Which tells me that God was very precise with this judgment, you know. And, we, and we've all seen... Hollywood and how this happened and you know how it's hitting things and it's it's barely missing the tree then hits the tree now God is very precise that hailstone mixed with fire boom took out that one tree he didn't have to send like 30 in that general area that hopefully one of them hits the tree boom 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 God very specifically hitting every tree and keeping it in the field, throughout the land. Not hitting a home, not hitting the barn, not hitting the stable, not hitting any area that is not specifically in the field. Interesting. Very interesting. So hail comes, mixed with fire, with it the first time death to men that didn't listen to God's word. Those servants who stayed out in the field, they died. This was also an attack on the Egyptian gods of the sky, Newt and Seth. Newt, we got this picture right here, the primordial uh, sky goddess personified by the canopy of the heavens, wife of Geb, the earth god. Um, Her headdress was a water pot, which also symbolized the uterus. Go figure. Okay, so you have this person right there. Um, Water pot, water being poured out upon the earth also brings life. The uterus also brings life. And so again, you know, every one of these um, false gods that, Egyptian gods, I mean, you know, this one brings life. I thought that one brings life. Well, that one does too. I thought this one brought life. You know, they all have, seem to have some way of bringing life, resurrecting life, something like that. Every single one of these gods seems to do that. Um, And then we have Seth, the Egyptian god, uh, known as the god of chaos, the god of storms. Um, Seth was a man with the head of a fantastic animal. They called the Seth animal. It had a pointy snout, a tail, rectangular ears, a thin canine body with a long forked tail. Um, Seth's image here shows him holding an ankh, which is uh, the, the key to life. Again, they all seem to have a hand in, in life, a staff, and on that staff, the, the top of the staff was actually the head uh, uh, of Seth, okay, so that's why it looks similar to his face there, you know, 
And so um, he was the a god of storms and, and things like that. Now, the interesting thing that I think of is that when we read verse 26 of chapter 9, things are glorious in the land of Goshen. And so it says, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. There was no hail. Things were just beautiful in Goshen. And from Goshen, you could see at the other part of the Nile Delta, dark clouds, you know, lightning, you know, some thunder going on, hearing it, looking over there. They're probably looking up and it's clear skies and everything. But over there, dark and ominous. And wow, things don't look so good over there, you know. And it's amazing to me, again, on Thursday, I am driving to the church at 3.30. I have an appointment here at 3.30. I'm driving from my house to the church, which usually takes about 12 minutes. It used to take eight, but with all the lights. Anyway, I'm not even going to get into that. But it used to be eight, but now it's 12. From that drive to my house here, the radio got interrupted four times. Four times. Because of a weather alert. Tornado warning. Tornado warning in Castle Rock. But also a tornado, tornado warning south of Denver in the Highlands Ranch region. And so I show up to the church here. It is beautiful. But I look over to Highlands Ranch area and it is dark. And it is ominous. And they had a tornado there. And I'm looking from here to there and I'm going... Huh, I wonder what they did wrong. No, I'm not. I didn't. No, I'm just kidding. No, no. No. No, no. But it's like God was giving me a perspective of Israel and Goshen looking over at Egypt. And I'm not about to suggest that Highlands Ranch is Egypt and we're the children of Israel or anything like that. All right. But it was funny. So anyway. Um, so, so I'm looking at this going, oh my goodness. This is what I'm going over this week. And then to find out they had a tornado, and I thank the Lord that there were no fatalities, and yet there were some people here that live in Highlands Ranch that told me about it, and I'm just going, unbelievable. It is so nuts that something like that could be happening so close, but not where you are. And that's exactly what was going on in Egypt. There in Goshen, they were fine, but Egypt was suffering under that wicked hailstorm or that hailstorm. And so it was like, wow. And so in verse 27, it says this, And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous. My people and I are wicked. How did Pharaoh send for Moses? Was it carrion pigeon and hoping that it doesn't get hit by the hail along the way? All of a sudden, go, poof, all right, let's do another one. You know what I mean? Uh, how, how did that work? You know, well, he probably sent a servant, Dave. Yeah, that servant didn't get hammered by hail? I would suggest to you he did not. Why? Because the servant didn't go by way of the field. How did the servant Aaron and Moses After they were told, come back. They came to Pharaoh, not by way of the fields. 
So whatever road they took, that's not part of the field, was not getting hit by hail and fire. That's how precise God was with this judgment. The hail and the fire just hit in the field. Not all throughout Egypt, to where it hammered all the roads and, 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 and the households and things like that. Or why bring your cattle in? Why stay in your house if it's also going to get pummeled by hail and fire? Because it didn't hit those places. It only hit the fields there in Egypt. That's why. So he comes back. Pharaoh says, I have sinned this time. This time. The Lord is righteous. That's a true statement. And my people and I are wicked. And that's also a true statement. And he says, entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thunderings and hail for it is enough. And I will let you go and you shall stay no longer. This is a false confession. This is a confession made out of emotion. Not one that has brought a lot of thought into it of who you are before a living God. And the reason we know this is a false confession is because what we're going to read here in a moment, okay, that he goes back to his ways and and things like that. And so, again, this is a false confession. There should have been more said besides, I have sinned. He is righteous, I am not. That's true. That is absolutely true. Now, what else? There's more that needs to be said. I have been in counseling before where I've told the person, I said, you you need to confess the Lord. And we can do that right now. And when they confess, it's very vague. God, you know, I haven't really been right with you. I ask that you forgive me. No, 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 no. What haven't you been right in? What is the specific sin that God has been speaking to you about? And whatever that specific sin is, Confess that. Say that sin. Don't try and gloss over it. But David's ugly. I know that. That's why you should say it. So you can take ownership of it. And show God that you're responsible for it. And when you confess it, we really do know what we're talking about specifically here. Pharaoh is remorseful because all that's happening to him. True repentance is seen in a changed life. It's going to seem by the actions that will be taken after you confess. I want you to go to Luke chapter 19. I love this area of of scripture, the story of Zacchaeus. I love Zacchaeus. It's one of my favorite stories and in the gospel accounts, I, I, I love it when someone comes to true repentance and willing to do whatever it takes. I love in counseling sometimes, Dave, I'll do whatever it takes, okay? And, and then as we walk with them, well, I'm not going to do that. You said whatever it takes. Yeah, well, I, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Okay, then I challenge your repentance in this area. Because you should be able to do whatever it takes. That shows humility. That shows allowing God to move and and do whatever he needs to do because you're willing to do whatever it takes. 
So here we have Zacchaeus in verse 1 of chapter 19. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Now we know from the rest of the account that he is Jewish. Okay, he is going to be hated by his Jewish brethren because he's collecting for the enemy. And he was rich. And the way that a tax collector became rich is because he skimmed off the side, skimmed off the top, and he overcharged the people he was taxing. So he's rich, and he's a tax collector. And he sought to see who Jesus was, but he could not because of the crowd, for he was short of stature. So he's a short man, and he couldn't see over the crowd. So he ran ahead, climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. He would do whatever. He was seeking the Lord. He is seeking Jesus. He will do whatever it takes to be able to see him. How do I know that? Because of his action. He was willing to be so undignified as an adult to climb up a tree. In order to see Jesus. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste, come down, for today I must stay at your house. He wanted to see Jesus. No doubt he probably would have loved to have talked to him, but he probably was thinking, I probably won't be able to do that. But if I could at least see him and to have Jesus stop, look up to him. Says, oh, hey, you and I have an appointment. We're going to meet at your house. How thrilled he must have been. How thrilled he must have been. And he made haste, came down, received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all complained, say, he has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. I love the fact that Jesus still today sits down with sinners. And I love the fact that as I seek the Lord each and every day, he is still willing to sit down with me, a sinner. I love that about my Lord and Savior. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I will restore fourfold. Which is exactly what it says in Exodus chapter 22. When you steal from someone, you need to restore it fourfold, you know. I still think that that is probably the best way to curb crime when it comes to theft and things like that. You stole my car. But yeah, you got it back. doesn't matter. In God's word, you restore fourfold. Now, granted, a lot of us would be leaving our keys in the car and, you know, and, and, you know, and hoping that somebody will grab it and your $25,000 car, now the guy has to pay you back, you know, $100,000. It's like, wow, that's a good deal. But it, it, it comes down to the fact that when, when a crime has been committed against you, you no longer feel like the victim because not only do you get your property back or the equivalent of whatever it is, but now that perpetrator has to now pay you back fourfold. As much as we wouldn't want our houses to be broken into, and when they do catch the person and we're able to get our stuff back, you still feel like the victim. And it isn't interesting that God had something in his word that in, in, in a way you actually benefited from the fact that you were a victim of something like that. And then all of a sudden you don't feel so victimized. And then that person actually does learn the value of a dollar instead of just sitting in a cell somewhere doing nothing. That person now has to work and their wages are garnished until they pay you back fourfold. It's a perfect system. 
But mankind's too dumb to adopt that. So anyway, that was just my little rant. You, that, that wasn't from the Lord, I don't think, at all. But anyway, <laughs> just saying, I wish we could do that today. And so you see a repentive heart here. I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. You have met the Lord Jesus Christ. You have met God. Because the word tells us to love God and to love others. And now you see the eternal of things. You really see eternal life, that you're going to stand before God someday. Zacchaeus, what did you do with all the stuff that you had? He's going, you're right. And I've been blessed, and now I want to be able to bless others. And if I have stolen, and he knows he has, I'm going to give back fourfold. That means he probably has in his records people that he has taken from. And he is going to restore fourfold. And look what Jesus says. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he also is the son of Abraham, thus showing he's Jewish. For the son of man has come to seek and save that which was lost. This is a transformed human being. There is change in that person's life. And as we're going to see with Pharaoh, there's no change. I've sinned. He is righteous. I've done wickedly. Yeah, you have. That's great. Your mouth moved. Said the right things. But now are you going to do the right thing? Are you going to do the right thing? Charles Spurgeon once wrote this. He says, how many a hardened rebel on shipboard when the timbers are strained and creaking, when the mast is broken and the shift, the ship is drifting before the gale, when the hungry waves are opening their mouths to swallow the ship alive and quick as those who go to the pit. How many a hardened sailor has bowed his knees with tears in his eyes and have cried, I have sinned. But of what value was his confession? The repentance that was born in the storm died in the calm. That repentance of his that was begotten amidst the thunder and the lightning ceased as soon as all was hushed and quiet. And the man who was a pious mariner when on board a ship, became the most wicked and abominable sailor when he placed his foot on terra firma, or the land. Oh yeah, when he was about to die, very pious, very, oh Lord, I have sinned. But then when things got calm, when he did not die, he became as hardened, as wicked as he's always been when he came to land. This is Pharaoh. Once the calamity is over, he hardens his heart. Moses knew this. This is why he says in verse 29. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease. There will be no more hail that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Moses knows this is a false confession. But he's going to entreat the Lord anyway. And so verse 31 Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in the bud. And so in Egypt, the flax and the barley are early crops. Uh, They produce in January and are ready to harvest in February. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. And so in Egypt, the wheat and the spelt, they rise in late February, March, ready to harvest by April. This is important to remember because this next plague, which is locusts, that's going to eat all the wheat and the spelt, would then have had to have come about eight weeks later. 
okay, about eight weeks later. And so we'll get more into that next time. And so it goes on and says in verse 33, so Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh, spread out his hands to the Lord, then the thunder and the hail ceased, the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard, neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Thus proving that Pharaoh didn't really repent. Say all you want with your mouth, but the sincerity of your confession will be seen in a changed life. And you could say all you want to people, I've changed. I'm no longer that person I was three months ago, six months ago. And it might be true. But they're probably going to need a little bit more time. Because they've probably seen a pattern in your life with other phases that you've had. Oh, I'm really into this, and then eight months later, you're not. I'm really into this, and three months later, you're not. I'm really into this, and a year later, you're not. Now I'm really into the Lord. Okay, we'll see where that goes. Time with the Lord is an amazing influencer in the lives of others. And the longer you have professed Christ and stayed on that journey, doesn't mean you haven't made mistakes. We all do. The greater your witness will be for Christ. And it's wonderful to have that rags to riches story in the sense of, man, you're a really, really horrible person, and now look who you are now. And that could have an immediate impact on people, and that's awesome. But the greatest testimony is going to be two, three, four, five years later, are you still walking with the Lord? And that's what we're here as the church body for. Because you're going to make mistakes, you're going to get frustrated in your relationship with the Lord, you're going to get mad at God, and we're here to come alongside and say, we get it. We've all been there that have walked with the Lord for a long period of time. We get it. But let us come alongside. Let us walk with you, love, exhort, and encourage you through it. Because God has brought you to this place to get through this place, to continue on your journey with God. Because that's going to have a much more powerful testimony for those who are watching you. That's why. And we're here for that. And then in verse, going back here to verse 14. Sorry, in verse 13, we'll read that again. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh, say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to the very heart on your servants, on your people, For this reason, that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. Christian, do you know that? There is none like God in all the earth, in all the universe, anywhere else. There is only one true God, Yahweh. I want you to go to Micah chapter 7. Go to the left here. If you know where Jonah is, just turn to the right. If you hit Amos, you've gone too far. Go to the right. You'll have Jonah. There's Micah. The name Micah is actually who is like God, who is like Yahweh is what that means. 
He served during the reigns of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah there in Judah. He preached God's judgment, but he also preached God's deliverance. He preached God's judgment. Judgment is coming. But understand, we serve and love a God that will not be angry forever. And so even though you're going to continue to mess up, even though you're going to continue to go after your idols, even though you're going to continue to harden yourself, even though God has sent me and other prophets for you to turn from your wicked ways, even though you're not going to do this and God is going to judge, there is hope, is what he says. And so here in verse 18, we're going to start there in chapter 7 of Micah, it says, Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity. Passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. Who is a God like you? It's kind of a play on words because at the same time, it's, it's Micah's name. Who is like God? Okay, so the prophet whose name makes you reflect on who is like God says, who is like God? It's an emphasis there, said there twice as this emphasis so we would reflect and ponder over who is a God like you? Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity? Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity, passes over transgression, does not retain his anger forever, who delights in mercy? Who is a God like you? No one. No one. He is an awesome God. And yet, there is something that you see every single day that God has never seen. In Exodus 15, 11, it says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? 1 Kings 8.23, and he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God in heaven above or on earth below like you, who keep your covenant and mercy with your servants who walk before you with all their hearts. In Isaiah 44, verse 6, thus says the Lord, Yahweh, King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last Besides me, there is no God. Is there a God beside me? Indeed, there is no other rock. I know not one, God declares. We see something every day that God has never seen. And you know what God has never seen? He's never seen his equal. I'm a sinner and I see sinners all the time. I see my equals all the time. He has never seen his equal. You know why? Because there's no one but him. That's why. Who is a God like you? Pardoning iniquity, passing over transgression. Who is a God like you? Does not retain his anger because he delights in mercy. What a great question. Who is like our God? As Micah has asked this, he's asking it in the midst of what other people worship. They worship the gods of Baal, Ashereth, the, the god Molech. And so he's asking this in the surrounding of those gods at that time. How did those gods deal with sin? Those who worshiped them, how, how did those gods deal with sin? Did Molech forgive? Did Asherah or Baal forgive? No. 
They didn't care about sin or guilt or forgiveness or anything like that. It's one of the reasons why Judaism stood out among all the other religions out there. By great contrast, it stood out because no other religion could release you from sin or guilt or bring forgiveness. The gods of the heathen world worshipped were very hostile. They're very fickle towards the men and women that worshipped them because they weren't real, okay? Had demons behind them. But people had to butter them up. We have to do all this to curry favor. But God of Israel, Yahweh, was completely different in that he was loving and kind and merciful, willing to forgive. And he had a desire to bless and to prosper those who worshipped him. The only obstacle to this blessing was sin. Sin stood in the way of God's favor. So out of his mercy, God provided a way for the people to cover their sin by the sacrifices that were given. It was a temporary covering, but it allowed for them to have fellowship with God and to be restored. This appealed to many Gentiles which is why they converted to Judaism and became God-fearers. The Gentiles were weighed down with heavy burden and guilt, and they saw in Judaism a way to be free from that. That's why so many God-fearing Gentiles were in the synagogues that Paul visited during his journeys. And so Micah asked the question against the backdrop of those gods in his day. And we can ask the same question today, with what other people worship. Who is a God like ours? There is none. There is no other God that pardons iniquity. Passes over transgressions. Who has made a way by sending his son down to die for the sin of mankind. There is no other God that has done that. Does Buddha forgive? No. Buddha does not forgive. Because sin is just an illusion. It's called ignorance. That's all. It's just called ignorance. Does Allah forgive? No, he does not. Allah is outside of the realm of our understanding. He's completely unknowable. What about the billions of gods worshipped in Hinduism? Do they forgive? No, none of them do. Because all those gods used to be human. And all of the living creatures are locked in this eternal cycle of reincarnation and karma. So you have to atone for your own sins. Where does the materials go for forgiveness? His bank account? You don't have enough, and you will never have enough. Where does the secularist humanist, the pragmatist, the agnostic go for a pardon? Where does the atheist take his guilt? Nowhere. No place to go. Now, God's word tells us something. We need to shout our praises to the Lord. There's no other God like ours. And so I'm going to ask for some participation here. That there's going to come a time that we are truly going to shout to the Lord. Because I would say up until this time, we have never, ever done that. We've never, ever done that. And when we get before the Lord, we're going to understand what it means to shout to the Lord. So we need to practice that. And so I'm going to ask for a little bit of participation here. And I'm going to ask for you to shout this as loud as you can. When I say, who is like our God, you're going to say as loud as you can, no one. Are you ready? 
God is the creator, the almighty one, the alpha and the omega, the advocate, the authority. Who is like our God? God is faithful and true. God is righteous and just. He is great shepherd. He is the great I am. He is Emmanuel. He is the judge of all. God is the Lord of all. Who is like our God? God is our redeemer, our hope, our savior, our risen Lord, our mighty one. Who is like our God? God is the resurrection and the life, the door, the way, the word, the true vine, the truth, the life. Who is like our God? God is wonderful counselor, mighty God, mighty to save, everlasting father, prince of peace. He's the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Who is like our God? Our God pardons. Our God forgives. Our God heals and takes away anxiety. Our God tells us not to fear this world, but to fear him. He is our rock. He is our mighty fortress. He covers over the sin that separates us from him and the manifold blessing of his love. This is the message of grace, the gospel we have for the dying world, a message of hope, of love, and forgiveness through Jesus the Christ, the Son of God, who is like our God. It's not even close. There is no one like our God. It's not even close. Can you carry that with you today, this week, that you understand that there is nothing too difficult for God? There is nothing too hard for him. Why? Because there is no one like our God. Quick to forgive. And that should make us quick to pray, to cry out to him, knowing he can do anything. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Amen.